I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about Special Olympics and inclusivity, we have with us a very special guest here today, Dr. Timothy Shriver, who is the chairman of the board of directors of the Special Olympics International since 1996. Tim, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be with you guys. So everybody knows the Special Olympics. We were just talking before we we came on. My, our listeners know I was a competitive swimmer and love all the Olympic sports. But can you tell us a little bit about what you do as chairman of the board of Special Olympics and, and what the mission is today as you see it? Yeah. Well, it's it's fascinating to hear so many people like you who grew up high school, college playing sports, volunteering at Special Olympics events in the United States, going to summer games in a state, uh, sometimes coaching. Those are the folks who have built the, the, the movement today. But the movement today is very different than that movement because the movement today, we're in 190 countries around the world. In a pre-COVID year, we would do over 100,000 games a year. So we're talking hundreds of events a day in rural India in Egypt and in Jordan and in Israel and in Kuwait and in Kenya and in Peru and in China and the list goes on and on. Grassroots community engagement around the issue of inclusion for children with special needs, children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So I like to think of us as the largest community-based movement for social inclusion in the world, community-based movement. So you know, a lot of organizations have grass tops capacity our real strength is grassroots capacity. We've got moms and dads and swimmers and soccer players in communities all over the world whose mission, whose joy, is to ensure that children who have intellectual challenges are allowed out of the closet, out of the back room, out of shame, out of humiliation, onto the playing field of sport so that they can message the world that everybody deserves a chance to be included and belong. So it's a movement you know, that's shifted from just what I'd like to say most people think of as an event to a movement. It's, it's now not just for kids with special needs, it's for all of us. Most of our teams now are what we call unified sports teams. So you could compete today on a unified, let's say, relay team in Special Olympics in Montgomery County or in Maryland. Wow. And you'd have a teammate who might have Down syndrome or autism or Williams syndrome, and you'd train four, five, six, eight weeks. You might go to a spring event in Montgomery County. You'd compete. You'd, I'm sure, win. Uh, wow. <laughs> so who's benefiting in, in this movement? Yes, the athletes are benefiting, and the contributions of volunteers, the millions of volunteers every year, who join our movement are extraordinary. But I have never met a single volunteer in any country who won't say that the benefit was outsized for them, that it was their life that was changed by the chance to have their eyes open, their heart open, their mind open to the power of this inclusive model. So it's a global movement now. I spent a lot of my time, I spent 10 or 15 years going two, three times a year to China, to the People's Republic of China, to to support their efforts to open the door to inclusion. And the same thing, we have our World Games most recently in the United Arab Emirates uh, in Abu Dhabi, where really transformed under the leadership of Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, pushed a whole new agenda for inclusion in schools across the UAE. And that's true in country after country now. So 
I like to say it's not your mother's Special Olympics. It is still, in some ways, my mother's Special yeah. Olympics. <laughs> but it's a very new and different movement. We, we like to characterize ourselves as an inclusion revolution. Wow. And engaging people, average people. We cross all these boundaries. It's really important to note, like, in our, like a volunteer base in the United States is almost 50-50 Republican-Democrat. Is that right? You know, and we don't have that super scientifically, but that's, that's, that's what the indications are. So it's important to see that a movement like this in the United States transcends polarization, but we're also as strong in Cuba as we are in the United States. We're as strong in, in the Middle East or the African or Latin American context as we are in Europe or North America. So it's really a boundary-spanning movement now. And I think that gives us a lot of us hope that in a time when there's a lot of cynicism and despair about the future of the planet, or the future of our race, the future of our political systems, that Special Olympics is a bright light that's sometimes hiding in plain sight in many of our communities. You know, I keep saying, wow, our producer Liz is going to say, you set a record for wow, <laughs> and we're going to have to like edit this or something. Mm-hmm. But it's because you can't help but be emotionally moved by what you're doing. And one of the things that occurs to me is, We talk a lot, we're a national security think tank focused on global challenges. We talk a lot here about hard power, soft power, smart power. This to me is like the ultimate smart power that the United States can export around the world and show goodwill. Do you think of it that way? Absolutely. I think sadly, you know, I grew up, I'm I'm a little older than, than you and probably most of your listeners, but I grew up in an era when the United States was seen around the world as a smart power, soft power force field. Yes, the United States in post-war 20th century had significant economic and political and military force. But the identity of the United States was often captured by things like the Peace Corps, was captured by the great coalitions that were built in Latin America with the United States, by broad commitments to the rights of human beings, to the freedom, to democracy. I mean, these were the words that I grew up hearing, that the United States was here to protect freedoms and democracy and individual human rights and and to bring peace and prosperity to people around the world. That's a message that we shouldn't lose, in my view. It'll have to change, but there is a strategic value to countries engaging on issues like access to education for children with intellectual disabilities and to the United States for being able to lead on those issues because these are issues... You know, it was fascinating to watch in the UAE when we talked at the end of our big event there. One of the things we heard from the leadership there was how many citizens of the UAE called in and said, thank you for doing this for my child. So there's a constituency out there of human beings in all these countries that is starving for a message of inclusion for their children. Right. And the United States could act and coalitions of countries could act without a great expense. You know, these are not things that require the construction of military fleets, you know, or or gigantic new investments in infrastructure. Even Uh, stadiums, because they already exist. They already exist. And a lot of our events, I mean, I I have pictures up in my office of uh, Special Olympics events in refugee camps where someone's come out and lined a a little patch of dirt and they're running 50-meter dashes and people are cheering and moms are screaming and laughing and crying. Changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. So we don't need a lot. But but I do think there is a strategic value to re-engaging around these soft power, smart power agendas. And I think inclusion is one of them. Where does the United States stand right now with respect to our policies on learning differences in education? I know that's core to what you're doing. Well, we're doing better. The Special Olympics movement has made a 
decisive move into the education space. Today, we have over 30,000 schools around the world that have what we call unified sports teams. So most of us grew up, and we would have seen a boys' basketball team and a girls' basketball team or a boys' soccer team and a girls' soccer team, men's and women's in college and so on. Today, we want to see all those schools have, in addition to those teams, a Special Olympics unified sports team. So when the pep rally takes place and the great swimmer comes charging through and the cheerleaders cheer and the band plays and everybody gets all fired up, we want that swimmer to come through. And then we want an athlete with Down syndrome to be charging through because he's leading or she's leading the Special Olympics unified team for that same school. And they'll get the more applause, too. Uh, uh, You better believe it. And they'll not just because it's sweet and kind, but because there's some energy that is released when people see that everybody is included in this. Yeah. So in the United States, back to your question, we're doing well. I'm proud of our country in many respects. Since the late 60s when we had 200,000 people institutionalized in this country, almost a quarter of a million people living in institutions in 1968, not in 1908, not in 1888, but in 1968, since those days, passage of significant legislation, 94-142, the Education of the Handicapped Act, and then subsequent bills around the ADA. We've done well. Our schools are largely inclusive. The barrier in the United States is what we call social inclusion. Most kids with an intellectual challenge, by the time they are 12 years old, have never been to a birthday party. Hmm. That's just the saddest thing you ever hear. Most children around the world have never been to school. Even sadder. So our estimates are 70, 80% of children with an intellectual challenge never go to school. So this is a gigantic, where the United States has resources and strength and capacity. We have good teacher training programs. We have good pedagogy insights here in the United States. We have good strategic ways of, of including kids. Most of the rest of the world, while it has committed in writing Most of your listeners will know the UN conventions on the rights of people with disabilities, on the rights of children. They'll know the SDGs by heart. They'll see on the SDGs commitments to inclusive education. But the reality is that most countries are dead in the water on including children with intellectual disabilities. So this is a strategic priority. We started with strategy, global strategy, smart power. This is a smart power strategy that has the right material in writing but not the right action strategies for implementing. So back in September, along the lines of what you're talking about now, you attended the Transforming Education Summit at the United Nations with international heads of state, policymakers. What were your takeaways from the summit? The good news is people are talking. Countries are speaking about SDG4. They're making it clear that if you don't have good education systems, you can't be competitive, you can't grow GDP, you can't grow, you can't reduce political violence, you can't, really, you can't achieve any of the other goals that sometimes are more front and center. There wasn't a lot of conversation about children with intellectual developmental disabilities. That, that wasn't as strong as I would have hoped. Some countries, there was mention of disability. The Secretary General of the UN has spoken about this, about disability being an important factor here. But generally speaking, the work necessary to implement inclusive education has way dragged behind the words necessary to commit to it. 
from our point of view, the good news is we're an implementing partner. The Special Olympics movement is a potential implementing partner. We've done this work now. We've promoted social inclusion. We've promoted physical activity. We've promoted young people learning about disability in countries around the world, and we've got these wonderful examples. So we're ready at relatively low cost. We are ready to be an implementing partner on a smart power agenda that strategically can lift identity, the reputation, and the success of countries around their core deliverables. We just need people to pick up the phone and call us so we can get to work. Absolutely. And I hope our listeners who are listening to this tell everyone they know about it. You've recently mentioned that the real point of the movement is inclusivity through basic human dignity in education. Now, we all know the pandemic strained education for everyone, but especially impacted children and parents managing learning differences. What, tell me a little bit about that. Learning loss is a global phenomenon now, and in some ways, uh, it'll be with us for a long time. I was in a school a couple of weeks ago where I was talking to teachers about learning loss, and, and one of the, the principal turned to me and said, you know, we, we do have learning loss, but we also have relationship loss. We have children who are anxious about coming back. We have children who don't feel comfortable in social settings. We have children who are afraid of peer group interactions. Because of the isolation? Yeah. I mean, they've been home for a year, two years, three years sometimes, or close to three years in certain situations. So the principal was saying to me, what we have to emphasize in order to address learning loss is relational trust. We have to rebuild trust with kids and rebuild the muscle of relationships. That's where we can, Special Olympics can be very, very helpful because that's what our athletes do well. Now, it's not so much what we teachers do well. It's what, the, what, our, what our community of people, they can help seed the ground for building back trust and relationships, not just in the United States, but around the world. So our community is much more likely to be discriminated against, much more likely to have suffered severe learning loss, much less likely to feel that their systems around them are equitable, healthcare, education, you name it. So COVID wreaked havoc on people with special needs. Anyone who knows a mom or a dad who has a kid with special needs, they, they could come on this podcast and tell you the stories. The moms, the dads, could the, the young people can. The exhaustion is palpable. I mean, you just feel it. And the pain and the technology doesn't work for all of our kids, right? It just right. doesn't work at all for many of our kids. So our community has really struggled. The inequities have been exposed in healthcare. Our community was five, six times more likely to die of COVID, not because of a disability, but because of the absence of care and treatment and prevention and, and even hospitalization. That's just like unacceptable. It's, it's, it's one of these things where we hope the tragedy produces an open door to change. The great fear is that the tragedies that we saw during COVID for this population will go into the rearview mirror and people will go back to the old norms. That we cannot tolerate. We must learn from what we've seen. We must change based on what we've learned. For us, the big opportunity now as doors of the world open, as the pandemic recedes, is let's open the schoolhouse doors. If we can do that, if it's not that overwhelming. I mean, everybody says we should, everybody says we will, everybody says we commit to it. Let's get after it. That's our message. So research has shown that inclusion in education has made schools not only safer, but also increased academic performances for students, both with and without learning differences, especially in countries like India and Kenya. How can the United States be involved 
on an international scale in terms of foreign policy efforts to further this mission? Well, look, I think that the good news here is that many people associate an organization like Special Olympics as a charity, something we're going to do for those kids. The exciting news is that when we do for those kids, we do for all kids. So reducing bullying doesn't just help children with intellectual. It helps everybody. It even helps bullies. Increasing a sense of social safety in a school, which is what our community does, helps all kids. Any level of diversity helps other kids. So when children start to see that, oh, the kid with Down syndrome is being accepted here, that makes it safer for them. That makes it safer for the kid who might be a little shy. That makes it safer for the kid who might not have friends. That makes it safer for the kid who might be struggling with other issues in their lives. So the inclusion of children with intellectual disabilities helps everybody tangibly, quantitatively. This is not just some emotional thing. Like you said, test scores, attendance rates, social inclusion, anti-bullying efforts. Those are big core priorities for school districts. We need to have those school districts that are trying to work in those areas see the inclusion of kids with special needs as a vehicle for achieving those goals. How do we incorporate that into a foreign policy? This is the great opportunity of this moment. I mean, you look, I'm not in the State Department. I'm not at the National Security Council. But if I were there, if I had a moment with the president or if with presidents of these other countries, I'd say, look, you've got a gem here. Build a smart power agenda that, where the United States can lead cooperatively with other countries and set big targets. Why not 50 or 100 countries over the next five years working towards full inclusion of all children? I mean, who's going to oppose that? Can't imagine who would oppose I mean, it. But and it's a strength for the United States, and it's a hunger for those countries. So yeah. you don't have to go in and pitch them that you're going to force someone to do this or make a trade on that. I, I just think there's a, there's a gigantic hunger. I would almost say a starvation. I'd say people around the world are so afraid. Uh, we're so divided. We're so anxious about the future. We're starving for something that can bring us together. We really are, all of us. And I don't mean just kids with special needs. We're all in this situation. Sure are. And this is, the Special Olympics movement offers a simple but enormously emotionally and educationally powerful opportunity to, to give us a little bit of that hope back. I mean, it seems to me, Tim, that if there's anything that can help Americans transcend our differences, whether it's a partisan difference or some other form of polarization, it's got to be something like this. It, it, you know, let's go back just for a second, not to do ancient history, but in the first half of the 20th century, people with intellectual disabilities were seen as pariahs, right? Valueless, the language was horrific. Defective, idiots, it's almost too painful to mention. Yeah. It was a form of exclusion, where someone was seen as so different they can't belong. We gotta get rid of them. You don't have to stretch to hear the same kind of language in our politics today. Those other people are so different, we gotta get rid of them. Yeah. Now, so what do we have to teach? What have we learned in the Special Olympics movement? We've learned that if you meet in a no-judgment zone, everything changes. We've learned that if you meet in the no-judgment zone where the relationship is more important than power, everything changes. So all of a sudden, people came to these track meets in the 60s and 70s and 80s. They came to the track meet, and they met someone they would have been terrified of. They would have excluded the day before. 
and they found themselves on a playing field. They find themselves today on a playing field. It's no, nobody's being judged. Just here, run. Let me see how you run. There's a lot to be learned from our athlete community about our current toxic polarization, about ways out of it. And I think still today, come to the local, you know, click on your specialolympics.org and find your local games this, this fall, this winter, and maybe next spring. Come out for an hour. We never ask people for more than an hour because usually after an hour, we got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. And I think that's our hope around the world. Come see what this community can mean when fully included. I would love to see U.S. ambassadors in their missions, the DCMs, the cultural affairs officers. I'd love to see them placing a full inclusion on their agendas to support the governments in which they're, where they're working, to learn from governments where there are great examples, to remind people that the United States believes deeply in these issues and co- is committed to them and wants to support them in the development of these strategies. I think it opens up a whole new way of engaging bilaterally and multilaterally that I think can be very fruitful. You know, I can tell you from my experience that it's a very granular level that everything you're saying rings true. The the swimmers that I grew up with who had intellectual differences and other physical disabilities, we were always so inspired by them because they were out there practicing with us. And they could do things that you wouldn't ever expect them to be able to do. And then they did them and it gave you the sense, wow, if they can do that, I could really push myself to do something else. And even more importantly, these were kids that became really good friends of ours yeah. growing up yeah. that you might not have ever seen before if you, seen. if you they weren't the participating. You didn't yeah. have the common. And we're seeing this, you know, Jamaica, Kenya, some other countries that we're working in Egypt now. We just had very strong commitments from the presidential level there. We're seeing small steps forward in this area. But I, I just... Maybe you're hearing it in my voice. I hope you are. I'm so hopeful yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And, you know, I hear all the cynicism and all the fear and all the anxiety and, you know, uh, elections come and, my God, the other party's going to come in. Or it doesn't matter which side you're on. There's so much foreboding. Look, I, I've had 25 years of the front row seat for the best in humanity. And I'm not convinced that it's not out there in all of us. And I'm not convinced that we can't tap into it. I'm not convinced that the experience you had as a young swimmer uh, wouldn't be meaningful and life-changing for millions of children around the world with and without special needs. And I'm not convinced that that can't be a powerful leaven for the strategic interests of the, of the planet. So we're aiming high here. We, we, we'd love to see full inclusion, social inclusion in every school in the world. And there's no reason that anybody's given me that we shouldn't achieve that goal. Tim, it's a real honor to have you on today, and you've given us so much to think about and and so much hope. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 